Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who was once allegedly caught by a paparazzo in the middle of a three-way with Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson, Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How you doing, buddy? <laughs> How are you doing, you Lothario, you? Those hey, rumors That's are his... anything but, from what I understand. I don't know what that movie was doing, but Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson really was as good as it gets. <laughs> she that wasn't was... in that movie, but, you know, we can pretend she was for that the purposes was, uh, of this That was Find the Hard Way. That was, uh... I don't know, I got nothing. <laughs> that was, like, at the height of, like, their, you know, their sex, their their sexiness, if you will, like, when they were a power couple. Like, I feel like that was kind of an anything-goes situation, probably. Care to, care my, to comment? My favorite part was when Jack Nicholson turns to me and looks in the middle of Coitus and says, where does she get all those wonderful toys? oh man so hey ryan funny thing true story i actually so i mean this story was something else i was really invested in it i actually tracked down the paparazzi that caught the three of you mid-coitus yeah and not only that i brought him here on the show to be a third co-host for one day and one day only. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Mr. Javon Aldridge. Hi, hi, hi. Happy to be here. I'm sorry I had to go through <laughs> such terrible things to be here, like catching this three-way happening. But uh, anything to get to the ends justifies the means. So said the great Denzel Washington. Or Spike Lee. Or Malcolm X. Malcolm X. It was Michael Max. so yeah everybody we've got uh there's three of us we haven't done this before and uh it's probably gonna get messy the same way it got messy between angelica jack and ryan so sit tight and ryan why don't you give us a description for the movie we're gonna look at today jason we are doing a deep dive into born on the fourth of july by oliver stone wow from 1989 uh, a.k.a. Love It or Leave It, a.k.a. No One Wants to See How the Sausage is Made. Uh, <laughs> this one was an odd one. Um, uh, let's just get right into it. Rotten Tomatoes describes this as, uh, in the mid-1960s, suburban New York teenager Ron Kovic enlists in the Marines, fulfilling what he sees as his patriotic duty. During his second tour in Vietnam, he accidentally kills a fellow soldier. Oops. During He doesn't say oops. During a retreat and later becomes permanently paralyzed in battle, returning home to an uncaring veterans administration bureaucracy and to people on both sides of the political divide who don't understand what he went through, Kovic becomes uh, an impassioned critic of the war. Um, yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I'm sure we all kind of do. I have a lot of mixed feelings about Oliver Stone in general. 
I'm sure we all kind of do. But hey, Willem Dafoe. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Javon, it's kind of funny because, you know, I mean, sometimes we, we get a little silly on this show. Don't know how many opportunities there's going to be for that. Uh, you know, obviously we'll have a ton of observations and what we think are witty comments, but, uh, you know, not going to be probably a, uh, as many yucks as they're in, in some of our episodes. So definitely looking forward to see what you have to bring to the table. And we're going to go ahead and get into this film right after we listen to this trailer for born on the 4th of July. I wanted to be a good American. I wanted to serve my country. I couldn't wait to fight my first war. We got him! We got him! Oh, get out! That's the word, go for Daddy, the soldier! Every force has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Your brother's a hard worker, Tommy. Win or lose. School, sports, life. As long as you do your best. That's what matters to God. First off, young men, let's get one thing straight. There is nothing prouder as a United States Marine. Our dad's got to go to WW2. This is our chance to do something. You should think about what you're doing. You could get yourself killed. Did you ever think about that? Please help me, Jesus. Help me to make the right decision. Sometimes I just like to stay here and never leave. But I gotta go. 13,000 miles. It's a long way to go to fight a war. Don't you know what it means to me to be a Marine, Dad? Ever since I was a kid, I've wanted this. I wanted to serve my country. I want to go to Vietnam. And I'll die there if I have to. There's something happening in here. You gotta try and stay alive, okay? You hear me? Chicago has an Alice in Wonderland quality about it. Things are getting curiouser and curiouser. Come on, get up there, get up there. Keep going, keep going, come on. Stop, children, watch that sound. Everybody look what's going down. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's right. Young people speak in their minds. Are getting so much resistance from behind. We find way to stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what All right, now guys, Ryan, you alluded to it a little bit. I want to know, I'm, you know what, I'm not even going to preface this or lead you guys anything. I'm going to ask each of you individually, Ryan first, then Javon, what is your personal opinion of Oliver Stone as either a filmmaker in totality or specifically as a writer-director? Ryan, you first. Uh, I've never really been a fan, even as more macabre uh, controversial films like natural born killers that a lot of people are drawn to it was never really my thing uh wall street was so so um 
I appreciate that he exists and brings, uh, you know, these messages to the general public, but I think he's a capable filmmaker, just not really my thing. I think it's some people's thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <my> definitely. Thing. <laughs> Javon, how about you? Uh, I have to disagree with Ryan. I don't know who these people are, who he's their thing, uh, but Oliver Stone's movies always feel like homework uh, that I did not want or did not ask for. Uh, it seems like something that would take place uh, while in a basement of a library uh, looking through microfiche. It's uh, just not any trip that I want to take on purpose. It's like an overhead projector that you fall asleep on. Uh, I'm sure that he got his point across. I, I felt what he was trying to say. Uh, I just don't think he's an entertainment director. Uh, it's not entertaining to me yeah. but uh definitely a good one to get started on definitely definitely so huh these are some uh these are some pretty fire takes man i mean i think most people out there would consider oliver stone to be a very highly regarded filmmaker i mean this is a dude that's won multiple academy awards for best director and right. has a prolific career in cinema like i said both as a director and a writer does a little producing as well and it's interesting that you guys say that because i've i've always been sort of on the fence with oliver stone i'm a little bit because he does have some hits for me like he he does make some movies that i really enjoyed and, and funny thing spoiler alert everyone i actually really dug this movie i really really enjoyed it and it sounds like i i appreciated it more than either and both of you did so We'll get into that in a little bit here. So for me, for example, like I think JFK is probably his absolute masterpiece. It's wonderful. It's like pretty much the only four hour movie that I can sit through, first of all. So points for that. I really enjoy Natural Born Killers. I love how over the top and crazy it is. And I mean, I think he used something like 24 to 30 different formats and techniques in that film and when you're going to tell like a story that's as drug soaked as that one is like that lends itself really well to those sort of experimental styles of at least cinematography, if not filmmaking in general. But then you get to his other movies. And the funny thing is, like, I'm going to say these movies and, and there's going to be listeners out there that are are absolutely aghast that we're saying that, you know, these aren't good movies because I'm talking about films like Wall Street, which you guys brought up. I'm talking about films like The Doors, which people love. Uh, films like Platoon. I actually would. Do, have you guys seen Platoon? Uh, I have not. I believe I've seen bits and pieces of Platoon. Is that where they make Michael J. Fox take part in some? I think that's Hamburger Hill. <laughs> oh, sorry. No. Yeah. Right. Oh no. I think that's actually Casualties of War. That's Casualties of War. It is Casualties. Ah, oh, very good, man. Yeah, right. deep cut, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I love I okay so I love Casualties of War don't know if I know Platoon okay yeah no so Platoon is like the film that that won best picture um and and it's so overwrought and ridiculous to me like it's the one like he's the type of he's the guy where you know it, it's got that famous sequence where I forget if it's Willem Dafoe or Tom Berenger but you know they get shot in the middle of the forest and there's like that classical requiem music and he's going down in slow motion where his hands go up and they get to the cover and it's like I don't know man like to me like it's just it's so melodramatic you know and and I'm not a guy who appreciates melodrama so Oliver Stone can be really really ham-fisted in a lot of these movies you know and even Scarface people love Scarface which he didn't direct but he wrote it it's fine 
I, I didn't grow up on it the way some people did, but I thought it was fine. I don't know if you guys love that movie, but like, yeah, but it's okay. But I will say, if you like Oliver Stone, uh, how many times have you watched JFK? Uh, I've probably seen it like three. So first of all, I probably haven't seen it in a decade. I think I probably saw it like, you know, three times in as many years or three three to five times in as many years when I was like really wow. in the film. That is a lot high of JFK. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, dude. I mean, uh, granted, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't sitting there the way Oliver Stone was probably, you know, just like busting lines on his desk and, uh, you know, with the, uh, the chalkboard with all the red string just going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. But no, I dug it, man. It was a good movie. I don't even know if Oliver Stone's seen JFK five times. I can guarantee you he has. <laughs> <laughs> I think he has, and he doesn't remember that he did. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's what I'm putting my money on. <laughs> uh, I will. Say, oh, by the uh, way, just I, real quick, I, I I just I do want to throw out the rogue because I was shocked and I didn't know this. Did you guys know that Oliver Stone wrote the screenplay for Conan the Barbarian? Now that's a film. <laughs> yes. What are we what are we wasting our time on this movie for? We should have jumped right to Conan. I'd like to change my answer about how I feel about Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. It's so outside the rest of his filmography in every respect, but it was like if not the first thing he wrote, the second thing. So apparently as far as you're concerned, he peaked real early and it was all downhill from there. Yes, that's back when he was fun. That's a guy I can get behind. <laughs> Now, if Oliver Stone would make a movie about a barbarian, it would come with uh, totally different energy. Yeah, definitely. There'd be there'd be a lot of guilt associated with it, you know. Now, if Arnold was in Born of the Fourth of July, that would be a film. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the monologues would be a little bit less resonant, but it doesn't mean it would be less fun. That's for sure. I, I just I, I if I would if I was knowing Arnold played uh mr kovic and then his mom tells him as a child i i see you some uh, someday giving a speech to everyone and everyone's gonna care and then i know that it's gonna be arnold schwarzenegger giving that speech in the last half of this movie i would just die laughing (laughs) i'm dying laughing at the thought of it (laughs) i had a dream what both of you are saying what both of you are saying is if this was a different movie i would have loved it Just a different director and a different lead. <laughs> Took place in a different setting, you know, maybe uh, with a different production designer, say. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Let's go ahead and let's actually dive into a little bit further about what we thought about this film. Start to back up a little bit of our positions here. So when the movie opens, because we're going to start at the beginning as we always do. At we've the got beginning. What I believe might actually take the... Uh, Guinness World Record for longest opening credit sequence. I think it was like 19 minutes before directed by Oliver Stone finally popped up. So that was that was unexpected, I will say. That man loved himself uh, a double VHS box set. I'll tell you that. Working at Blockbuster <laughs> Video. That's my one memory of Oliver Stone is all his movies were like double VHS box sets. And you get yeah. fined twice for not rewinding. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got this lingering shot of the forest. Tom Cruise opens up with some voiceover narration. He's listing off the names of some of his childhood friends as they play soldiers in a pretend war in the forest. From there, we cut to an Independence Day parade. It's now 1956. Did we see a kid get hit with a brick in the head during that? 
Did he? I feel like they were fighting very realistically. Man, things they, were they, different they back then. They definitely were. But yeah, I, I don't remember him getting like bricked in the a head. He gets hit very, with very, a very brick well in the head. With he's wearing a helmet. <laughs> I wrote it down on my notes. I I I really like for you to go back, but it was like they were playing cops, robbers, and Reginald Denny. I don't know, but he definitely got hit with a brick. You should check it out. Sorry, you had to know. That. It was robbers. It was, and no, Reginald it was Denny. it was definitely intense, and and that you know sets the scene obviously for what's going to come later. All of a sudden, the actual war doesn't seem so bad. But uh, there were a couple things that stood out to me. Ryan, I'm going to ask you uh, the the this first observation. So uh, you you probably noticed, but but did you see who, uh, in the credit sequence, who uh, was responsible for doing the score for this film? No, I didn't. You didn't? No. Uh, and you, you didn't You didn't really... Is there, was there a name that came to mind at all as you were listening to these very elegaic strings and whatnot? No, now I'm curious. Oh wow! So if Play I told me. you, if I told you that Mr. J Dubs, that's right, John Williams himself scored I, this film. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Just that's why it sounds wow. like every Spielberg film you've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, honestly, so. I I didn't think much about the score. That's funny you bring that up. I thought it was kind of cheesy. I I was a little disappointed and. uh Seeing this was 89, I mean, this was smack dab between uh, Jedi and uh, all his uh, Indiana Jones stuff. And uh, he was probably yeah. just wrapping uh, Last Crusade and getting ready to do Jurassic Park, I would assume. So probably this is like peak Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and, and here's the thing. I mean, a John Williams score is always like an incredibly earnest score, right? Eh, that's probably one of the best ways you can describe it. Like he's never going to, you know, go through his like, you know, Miles Davis on heroin phase. Right. Where he's like trying to explore like the space between the notes and doing this like weird experimental Philip Glass score to like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Never going to do that. Never going to do that. Very on the nose. Very. But I mean, for that sound, if that's what you're going for, you know, eh, he's the best in the business. So I'm pretty shocked I didn't pick up on that, to be honest. Yeah. Now, Javon, this is uh this this next thing is for you because uh, I probably know what Ryan thinks. But so when the, when this in in this beginning credit sequence, all these kids are at this parade, and this parade is like popping off, man. Like all of these kids are running down the street, and they got fireworks and dudes are drinking beer or whatever. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement. And Javon, I want you to tell me if you agree or disagree with the following statement. <clears throat> Parades are boring as shit. Agree or disagree? I agree. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mr. Javon. I'm Do glad tell that they have gone the way hate- of the dodo bird. <laughs> why is it that you that you hate parades? I can pick up on what's going on a lot sooner than it takes for them to pass by. I don't need to see <laughs> it'd be like looking at one picture for a really long time. And when you're a kid, all you, and I remember being a kid around this time and you're just surrounded by crotches and you follow the wrong crotch and you look up and it's not even your parent. And it's a very confusing for a kid. They always bring you out there to look at it. And you saw it, you saw it five seconds ago. You saw it down the road. Your eyes work really well. So that's why I hate parades. (laughs) 
Fantastic. I, I, I knew it was a good idea bringing you on this show. So now, I mean, Ryan, <laughs> I got to ask now, Ryan, what do you do? You like parades or are you are you contrary here or do you hate them as well? No, no, I'm not a I'm not a parade guy. I'm not a stand in in a crowd guy. That's just not really my thing. Um, you know, I, I tend to agree with Javon's stance wholeheartedly. I have All heard right, that you so. can throw your own parade in Louisiana for about three hundred dollars. I feel like that would be super cool. You can walk yeah. all, you know, you and your friends. That would be great. But yeah, I haven't seen a great parade yet. Maybe we can uh, figure out a way to make an exciting parade. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've got uh, three pretty strong anti-paraders here. So listeners know and uh, get to know a little bit about us right now. Let's jump back into the, whole, the film. The shots. whole opening we... of this movie was just beating you on the head with um, nostalgia. This was just, I'm yes. glad you used the word in, our, in your opening, ham-fisted, because I have it three times in my notes. It's also one of my <laughs> uh, three descriptor words, spoiler alert. So, um, yeah, my three adjectives later. So, yeah, I, I just, I felt like, I, I also uh, did a little research Brian, on this. Brian, did you say ham-fisted? Yeah, ham-fisted. Okay. Yeah, ham-fisted. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> and you guys both know this word. Okay, I gotta. Oh Google yeah, I, I'm pretty sure both of us use it on this show regularly. Yeah, it was ham-fisted nostalgia. Which is, yeah, um, which by the way, it's not a pornographic thing. I know ham-fisted sounds like it would be something sexual in nature, but I promise you, it's not. You like, will not believe what came up on my phone when I Google it. But proceed. <laughs> <laughs> was it Angelica Houston? <laughs> Wait till they get a load of me. Uh, they call that a callback in the biz. Yeah. Um, no, I, I did a little research on this, and uh, this movie was, sh- speaking of ham-fisted, was shot in white tones, red tones, and blue tones. I uh, know, the white I tones saw being that, dear God. Nostalgia, the red tones being uh, the drama and violence of war, and then the blue tones being sadness and morose uh, scenes. Uh, so... Th- you know, the, this whole opening was white, uh, you know, shrouded in like a white mist or like a white filter or just even some color grading in, uh, in post. But, uh, yeah, they they make sure to let you know this was from days of yore. This was, I think, when people say make America great again, this is what if they close their eyes and this is what they're picturing was like the whole opening <laughs> of this movie. The Yankees hat and the parade and the, the playing army in the woods. Throwing bricks at your friends, no uh, repercussions, <laughs> you know. In that parade shot, by the way, they uh, they go through they go through the parade, and it as actually is a beautiful scene. I'm not a film student; you two are, so I'm kind of the novice in this. Uh, but I did think it was cool that they went out of the way to show all the things from the time period. They even had some guys hanging out in leather jackets. Uh, they looked like they were about to sing how great it was to be a jet. But it was uh, <laughs> it was cool that they showed. I did appreciate that shot uh, where they take you through the parade and basically show you all the different people. No black people, but uh, that is why <laughs> you know that <laughs> the good old days, as some people say. Yeah. So now you you guys aren't wrong because Jason wants no part of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I well, can say, this... Jason. Well, no. So. I'm mainly I'm just looking at the fact that like we still are uh, about 20 minutes into the film. I think we actually have more podcast than film at this point. So having fun, but we do have to a movie to get back to here. So to your point, 
I thought the whole movie was going to be this overwrought and maybe we'll disagree on this, but I didn't that. So you get, you're 100% right. Everything about the beginning is just so over the top. Everything's amped up to 11, even just like how excited the coach gets when Ron like knocks the home run. Like he just absolutely loses his shit. Like he just won the freaking world series. It's like his little league coach game. So, you know, Oliver Stone definitely ramps everything up, but I thought that he did a good job of kind of scaling back a little bit as the movie went forward in that regard. Maybe not with regards to Tom Cruise's performance and the evolution of the protagonist, who kind of, you know, starts to lose his shit and get a little yelly and theatrical in the performance. But I don't think that the filmmaking, it could have been, it wasn't Natural Born Killers, you know, in, in terms of the way that the film was presented. See, I, so, Jason, I disagree. I think that everybody, with the exception of Defoe, Cruz, and maybe Kira Sedgwick, um, I thought this whole movie played out like community theater. Uh, it's funny that we're following Bowfinger, with this because it felt like it was being directed by Bowfinger and like all the actors and actresses were like, just giving it their fucking all. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of trying in this movie. Yes. Everybody. There was a lot of trying. I was 11 for sure. It was like John Lovitz in Saturday Night Live, you know, acting. (laughs) I just (laughs) expected everybody walking off the set. Like I'm going to, Fucking Oliver Stone movie. That's right, bitches. Where's the craft services <laughs> table? <laughs> Kicking things over. Yeah, and 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 also the uh, the celebrity cameos were fun. Seeing little baby face Steve Baldwin and Frank. Everybody Whaley and was Sedgwick somebody and all in this those movie. guys. That's my favorite Baldwin, by the way. This movie had not one, not two, but three Baldwins, and it, none of them were Alec. <laughs> <laughs> had to come in under budget. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Three for the price of one? <laughs> Stephen Baldwin is the discount. He's the discount Baldwin. <laughs> Kirkland brand. He, yeah, he's, he's second or third in the pecking order for sure. So, and we see them when, uh, when Kira Sedgwick's character is actually approached by Ron, who asks if she wants to go to prom. And she says that she's already going with someone else. He gets, you know, rightfully pissed off, goes and chucks something in the back. And, you know, from there we learn that his family is both very large and deeply Catholic. And, you know, he has this moment. And this I thought was super funny, and I'm sure you guys will agree with me on this. So, you know, he has the scene where he decides not to go to prom. He gets on his knees. He looks up at his crucifix. He prays to God. And then he has like the aha moment and he stands up and then he runs through the middle of the rain and goes and like bursts open the door at the prom and walks through the crowd, you know, separating the sea of people to Kira Cedric's character and like takes her and like has that dance. That's like 25 minutes into the movie. Like that's that's the end of everyone else's movie. But Oliver Stone can't say no to anything, right? Because Oliver Stone has to have everything and all of it, and it's all got to be ramped up. So, like, whereas most people would finish their movie with the run through the rain scene and, you know, have the characters meet, he's like, nah, bro, I got you on minute 25 with that. I thought that was kind of ridiculous and, to your guys' point, indicative of how overwrought stone can be so uh, well, the first 19 minutes were were the title sequence so <laughs> True. how many times did you think that you were gonna see tom cruise run in this movie 
knowing his other movies <laughs> and how he runs in every movie. Maybe this was contractual. Maybe that's why they had to put it in. They're like, well, we need to get him running at some point. Like, well, he's going to Nam. We'll get him running there. No, 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 no. <laughs> we need him running. Yeah. Yeah. They well, even and have I like a little the... kid running around the bases. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Tom no, Cruise absolutely. And the funny thing is that, you know, most of the movie, he's in the wheelchair. So they basically were like, nah, dude, we got to get him running when we can. Right. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's one. the entire reason they even did that when they did. Is he's like, I've got to have my running through the rain scene, but he doesn't have legs later or he can't use them anyway. So, like, we got to put this in minute 25. Yeah, that explains all that. (laughs) I just feel like it doesn't matter with Oliver Stone. It doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is always going to be more. Right. Like he treats like like he treats emotion the way that Michael Bay treats explosions. Just just the more the better and ramp them the hell up. <laughs> well, and in all fairness too, this was the 80s, which was a very more decade. It was a, you know, decade of decadence. It was, you know, uh I mean, Tom Cruise was coming off of uh, you know, Top Gun probably around this time. I I'm trying to think of what he was doing in between Top Gun and this, but Definitely shirtless volleyball playing, uh, you know, was going on and riding motorcycles down the speedway and all of that. So, um, yeah, I just think that it was a a more decade. I mean, that's what Wall Street was all about, right? was kind of the decadence of that era and uh, Oliver Stone showing the manipulation of that. So, um, you know, he's kind of playing into some of that that era, maybe a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So from there, we cut to January 1968 and we're in Vietnam with Ron and the rest of his company, and very quickly they end up attacking this village after being sort of persuaded by, like, a commanding officer, and they end up killing a bunch of civilians, including a number of women and children. Uh, as Once they realize that they do this, they end up ceasing fire, but that's when they themselves end up being attacked, and this whole thing proved to be an ambush. So as everybody's being attacked by the Vietnamese... Ron is shot in the heel. He can't walk anymore. And, you know, we see the helicopter go crashing to the ground. There's plenty more of that slow-mo and the John Williams swelling strings that we talked about. And then Ron gets shot in the chest, actually. It drops to the ground, and that's when he's picked up and saved by a fellow soldier. Throws him on his shoulders, runs him out, and Ron is shortly airlifted out from there. He gets sent to an infirmary. And uh, this is one scene that I actually liked. I did like the way that Oliver Stone presented the infirmary. Like it was kind of did it kind of had like a horror vibe to it. You know, a lot of Dutch angles, that kind of sort of sickly fluorescent lighting. You know, you've got like the echo and the distorted voice effects. I I thought that was pretty effectively done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like the middle of this film. I didn't really like the ham-fisted nostalgia in the beginning. And I didn't really like kind of the way I didn't I won't say I'd like I hated it but I didn't really love the the way that it uh, kind of beat you over the head with the message over and over and over again by the end um, sure but uh, but what I what I will agree with Javon on is I don't necessarily also like the filmmaking style I that the the overacting uh, at times there were a lot of colored gels in this film like Dagon style uh, like we talked about last episode a um, lot of yeah. harsh blues and harsh oranges uh, colored gels in the background on wet uh, pavement the same way that Stuart Gordon did at Dagon um, the music 
we'll take a break here because this is around the time in the film when he's in Nam and all this is going on. They use um, a lot of the, the songs you're used to hearing from this era, but in cover band form. Did you notice that, Jason or Javon? So, like, they, they, they I guess Can't they couldn't afford no. the rights to Are, any of these, so they would have someone at the bar <laughs> playing a Bob Dylan song or Fortunate Son instead of, They like, had his it. brother playing The Times Are Changing before right. he goes out. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, to go back to his family, how many brothers and sisters did he have? Oh, like, dude, 19. what, at least six, right? Yeah, all, that was a large brothers and sisters, I All think, of them? They would have a reality show today. <laughs> yeah, the <Cromartis. laughs> <They> absolutely would. <laughs> um, yeah, that family hated two things: uh, Playboy and condoms. That's what we learned. <laughs> oh, his mother beat him with the Playboy. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that was an embarrassing scene. A brace face Tom Cruise was uh, caught with the old Playboy. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, you know, so from there, he's sent to the vet hospital, and that's where we kind of get the opportunity to see exactly the level of squalor that these sort of VA hospitals and and veterans hospitals exist within. You know, this place is a shithole. It's got rats. There's urine everywhere. You got, you know, orderlies gambling. Don't really give a shit about the patients. And, you know, Ron has to rehab in this place. And despite that, you know, he actually does try to, to maintain a sense of optimism. Really, you know, he's... He's as determined as he was, you know, even before he went to the war, that he's going to walk again, despite the fact that the doctors repeatedly tell him that he's not. And, uh, you know, we also get that (laughs) there's a really gnarly scene, too, where he's walking around and he takes that fall and the bone ends up popping out of his thigh. (laughs) <laughs> that was Joe Theismann up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then uh and then, you know, from there he's I didn't quite understand the physics or what was going on there, but he's like placed in that rotation device where they have to kind of just keep flipping them upside down back and forth. And I guess it's a way for them to uh to keep his leg because they, they want to amputate his leg and it's something to do with drainage. Like they really had that yeah, I think it had something to do with draining it, maybe keeping the keeping it fresh and rotating it. I, I definitely not any sort of medical expert here, so but uh, I think yeah, when so, you get you know, that but, nasty of a break, you have the chance of losing your legs, uh, which he was very adamant about not having happen, uh, even though his legs were for decoration. He wanted to keep <laughs> them because of all the shoes that he had. that's just it he's a really big fan of shoes I missed that part but it actually makes a lot of sense when you put it that way (laughs) so yeah um, you know and and of course that starts to affect him a little bit mentally from there we jump forward so it's now 1969 he's sent back home as we've just discussed he has both of his legs and you know all of his family and his neighbors come out to greet him give him the sort of hero's welcome his mom's obviously taking it a little bit hard now, guys, which was uh, interesting because she said it was God's will that he go to that war beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it was kind of just one of those things where it's one thing to speak about it in theory, but it's another thing to see it in person. Right. I mean, we've seen that in a number of different specs in a lot of different ways. I would imagine it's probably something like that. I did want to ask you, though, too, because, you know, you guys, you guys have definitely come with your share of criticisms. One of the criticisms I had, and it might, it might sound weird. I guess this is kind of why I want to, like, see if this even, like, kind of makes sense to you. But, like, this movie, so it's obviously it's based on a book, right? And I don't know why, 
But there were certain times where it actually like felt like it was a retelling of a book, right? Like, and, and if I have any criticism of the film, it's just that it doesn't necessarily always feel super cohesive. Like the, the best way that I can put it is to use like a music analogy, which is to say that it's like, it's like, it's, it's the movie equivalent of listening to the greatest hits compilation instead of hearing like the original LP. Does it, does that make sense at all? Yeah. A little bit. Did you feel that way at all, Javon? Yes, because you were expecting it to be like entertainment, and it was more like they we got a lot of material to cover. We got to take all the stuff that happens to this guy in a short period of time, and it didn't always feel like they were trying to be entertaining, but it was Ron Kovic's life, so I'm basically saying his life wasn't entertaining the way they told it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for all of your uh, trials and tribulations there, Ron, but could you make no, it a little more entertaining for the audience, Can you tell please? that story better? That's on Oliver Stone, though, <laughs> and that's why that takes me full circle to what I said in the beginning. Like, Oliver's not really my speed. I just felt like the, the, the um, again, it was like, it was cover songs by cover bands, so you don't get, you know, the, the, the big, awesome Vietnam War era movie soundtrack that we're all accustomed to. All the actors were overacting. You're jumping around a lot, to your point, Jason. Um, and never really kind of finishing one thing before you're starting another per se, uh, which may be kind of what you're saying, but that's kind of how I took it a little bit. You're kind of bouncing around and, and you never really get to let one thing sink in. Now the VA, uh, clinic, like you said, that was powerful to me. Um, the way he was being treated when he, when he goes home. But I also feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm looking at this through, 2021 eyes where we're all kind of cynical and we know what the government is up to. And we know a lot of these wars are, have not been legit and and the Vietnam war and stuff. And so though this is a tale about someone who was kind of um, hoodwinked into going to Vietnam under the wrong circumstances and thought he was going to be captain America and ended up doing things that, you know, he didn't realize that he was going to be asked to do like killing women and children and civilians and being put in compromising situations. So when we go back and he's like talking about, Oh, it's God's will that I go to this war and this and that, like it was hard for me to take that, you know, golly gee, Tom Cruise from the sixties, seriously, even though a lot of those men and uh, women, maybe not women, men that were going to war back then uh, felt that way. Uh, It was, it, it did kind of feel out of place. I don't know. What did you, did you guys feel that way at all? Or was that just me being cynical? Well, no. So I actually, so this, th- that kind of actually brings up one of the things that I really liked about the movie, which is I feel like a lot of the story elements and dispositions of the characters at the beginning are really in service of the back half of the film, right? Like they're setting it up so that the character can have this arc. Right. Like Ron himself starts off as this gung ho, like you say, Captain America guy. And then by the end of it, you know, he's going to be the long haired hippie in the wheelchair who's critical of the government. Right. And even there's that earlier scene where he gets. Yeah. And there's (laughs) that. And there's even that earlier scene where he gets really upset with his brother for taking, you know, the the anti stance and sympathizing with the protesters. So in the following scene, for example, it's the July 4th parade the independence day parade but it's like you know however many years 10 15 years later 
and Ron is going to participate in it in the form of a ride-along where he's going to be one of, like, the wounded soldiers that they put in the back of the car and they drive down the parade. And it's an obvious callback to that initial scene that we discussed with the parade, but with an entirely new veneer to it, right? Because now it's the 60s, and instead of it just being, you know, un... un uh, uninterrupted patriotism, so to speak, you know, now that's like, well, people are questioning why we're in this war. And so you've got the hippies that are sort of yelling at him because they don't agree with why they're there. And we start to see it dawn on Ron's face where he's kind of confused by this response that he's getting. He doesn't really quite understand why people aren't just celebrating him with, with no strings attached, so to speak. Right. And I yeah, thought he, that we the find movie, out, uh, that he did two tours over there when he was in Nam, he said, I'm on, I'm on my second tour and I haven't, when he talks to the, uh, we didn't even talk about this, but, um, a major catalyst in his arc that, that we kind of skimmed over that, that deserves to go back and be mentioned is that, uh, in that firefight when all that nonsense was happening and they, he was on, in shell shock from killing the civilians. Um, he also mm-hmm. ends up killing in friendly fire, one of, uh, his subordinates in the military and one of yes, his of mar- fellow Marines. And that, is really more than even losing the use of his legs that I think that fucks him up more throughout the film, uh, that he saw men and women sacrificed, uh, for freedom and then comes back. And this is how in America, how we're dealing with it, uh, and, and treating, you know, these veterans this way himself included. So yeah, um, it's not the America that he left, you know, that he real quick. I think it's also especially powerful that he just finished assuring this kid that he'd never seen a boy from Georgia get hurt. And right. then he promptly yeah. like empties an entire clip into him as he dives over a dune. Uh, I think that is maybe as big of a problem for Tom as the lo- loss of his legs. Yeah, definitely. Also, yeah, we're talking 100%. about the parade scene. I. One thing that I did notice about this particular scene, and it does make Oliver Stone a good storyteller, is at the very beginning of the film when there's a parade, you can see that there are gunshots and that the soldiers are flinching at the gunshots. Mm -hmm. And when Tom has his parade, he is now flinching at the gunshots, uh, which Mm -hmm. is something that I don't think any of America notices on every 4th of July how it affects you differently. So we're seeing that he's different than the kid that was letting off shots at the beginning. And I thought that was pretty powerful. The old plant and payoff. I will also say uh, the, the gentleman that you're talking about in the wheelchair, that's flinching at those uh, gunshots or the fireworks rather uh, in the beginning parade is Ron Kovic. Uh, Oh, it's the real Ron. That's the real dude. Yeah. Oh, crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and then carrying over from that, you know, because he ends up, so he's basically after the, you know, driving part of the parade, he's invited to go to this stage that's set up at a local park to speak. And he tries, he gets up there, but he very quickly has a flashback because one of the sounds that he heard when they were attacking those villagers was obviously the screams of the child. So much in the same way that you guys are talking about with the flinching at the gunshots, he hears a baby in the crowd start crying that triggers the memories of him being in Vietnam, and then all of a sudden he can't get outside of his head, right? That's all he can think of. He doesn't end up being able to deliver the speech, and they kind of have to to carry him off stage. So I thought that the movie did a good job of constantly bringing us back to that, you know, and doing right. like you guys were just talking about, a lot of those callbacks and reminding us that, you know, these experiences, these traumas aren't anything that leaves you at any point in time. 
you know? Tom Tom Cruise in this film was fantastic. Um, yeah. He took this film on his shoulders and carried the shit out of it. This is not... Uh, how do I say this? I really love the, the middle of this movie where Tom really lays it down and puts you in... Um, the the point of view of of Ron and, and everything that a veteran in general went through at that time that time period. Uh, this is also a story that I take very seriously. Uh, you know, we make our jokes on this podcast and we try to make it silly and fun. This one, I think, all three of us said before we hit record that uh, this was going to be a hard one because. The topic is something that's kind of near and dear to all of us. It's a serious tone. It's something that our soldiers are still dealing with to this very day. And um, in a lot of ways, specifically with the VA being uh, a hunk of junk, I mean, we should prioritize our veterans uh, first and foremost. But, you know, so we all try to make light of it. I think this movie suffers, you know, in spite of Tom Cruise. I think that a lot of the things that he was given to work with, whether it's, like I said, the the music or the acting or the lighting or whatever, um, kind of that, those are the elements that took me out of it. Uh, by no means should, I, I don't want to be on the record as saying that, that I'm not taking, you know, this performance seriously or what our veterans go through seriously or, or anything like that. I think that, uh, that Tom Cruise, you know, dealing with the PTSD and his stance on, uh, the America that he came home to post Kent state um, during the summer of love, when everybody was protesting the war, um, you know, that was all done very, very well. Uh, but then, you know, you mm. get these moments like shortly thereafter where he has his Forrest and Jenny moment with him and Kira Sedgwick uh, where he yeah. goes and, and meets up with her. I think that was pretty much right after this, or it was either right before or right after where he was all, yeah. you know, kind of still disillusioned Tom Cruise and not, or Ron Kovic, not wispy mustache, uh, hippie Ron Kovic. So, um, yeah, well, it was right after actually it was right after, cause right after that scene, there's the scene where the young Frank Whaley, when he, when he's being, when Ron that is, yep, is being yep. brought down from the stage, young Frank Whaley he's, runs up and he's like, Hey buddy, you know, he was surprisingly good. Yeah, yeah, he was good too, and they actually he takes have him out of there. T- he takes him out of there, if I recall. Yeah, he 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 basically like runs up, says, "Hey, what's up, buddy?" Because he served as well. So I don't believe they were in the same company, but they both served. So he basically gets him out of there, goes back home with him, and then Ryan, to your point, yeah, I mean Tom Cruise was was really good in this, and the thing about this role is you really expect a good enough actor to nail the loud parts, right? You know, so when the actor gets his, you know, like towards the end when when Ron gets drunk and he's screaming with his mom, right? Like a lot of actors are going to nail that part. But what I really love is how Tom Cruise nails some of the more understated parts, uh, especially earlier on. So like this scene in particular is one that I'm talking about where he's in the back and he's reminiscing with Frank Whaley's character and again, instead of being an over-the-top, super melodramatic scene, it's very sort of reflective and contemplative and illustrative of the fact that Ron is, is as I mentioned before, confused by this response. He doesn't really understand why he just doesn't have 100% unequivocal support. And yeah. I do want to play that for our listeners real quick. Sure. And we'll come back and continue talking about that. When I was in the hospital, I thought, yeah... Yeah, this makes sense. What makes sense? Because I failed, Timmy. What are you talking about? Because I... 
because I killed someone, some people. I made some terrible mistakes. Ronnie, Christ's sakes, we all made mistakes. I mean, you, you had no choice. That's something the goddamn pansy demonstrates. They're never going to understand. Now, look, Ronnie, you don't even got to talk about it. I mean, we was insane over there. It was, it was crazy. Sometimes I wish, I wish I'd... First time I got hit, I was shot in the foot. I could have laid down. I mean, who gives a fuck now if I was a hero or not? I was paralyzed, castrated that day. Why? So, so st stupid. I have my dick and my balls now, and I think... I think, Timmy, I give everything I believe in. Everything I got, all my values, just to have my body back again, just to be whole again. I'm not whole. I never will be, and that's the way it is, isn't it? For Christ's sake, Ronnie. It's your birthday. You're alive. You made it. Smile. So once again, you know, really showing that Tom Cruise has range. He's able to hit the low reflective parts just as much as the loud, high aggressive parts. And Ryan, to your point, I, you know, Tom Cruise, he, Javon, you actually brought this up earlier about how, you know, most of us know Tom Cruise as sort of like the action star, right? He's the, he's the guy that, you know, runs to stuff and he runs away stuff, but there are a handful of performances where he gets to play against that type. I know I can think of a couple. Are there, are there any historical Tom Cruise performances, Javon, that like come to mind Outside of this one where uh, you, that you could compare it to where it was just outside of his normal action persona? Uh, I, I was actually talking to Ryan about, uh, you know, Magnolia was uh, one of the weird ones for he wasn't, you know, I guess he was an intense dude, but he wasn't an action star. He's usually the man in most things. And one thing I will say about this particular performance is he really made you feel Ron Kovic's uh, pain with not being able to uh, do certain things. And he did have a whole lot of range, but usually he's the man. He's beating up four people, uh, telling you that the other two will run away if you beat up five people, which is probably true. Um, I can't think of too many times where he gets the opportunity to do what he did here. Uh, I think yeah. he gets away from it because a lot of his other movies, he does not get this opportunity. So, so I was pleasantly surprised. So real quick, I'll interject and say that uh, he's coming off of Rain Man to do this movie. Okay. So interesting. He was, yeah, he wasn't the action star in that one, um, but he was the man, so to speak. Oh no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. He wasn't. If like, he had played Rain Man, now that would be range. Right. That's fair. <laughs> uh, you you do have to wonder though, like when you start to look at his his catalog and you realize. Uh, I'd like to almost take him out of context and look at the directors that he's worked with even more so than the roles that he's played. So then you start to tally up all the things he's probably learned. I mean, when you work with a Scorsese or, you know, an Oliver Stone or someone like that, you know, you start to learn a lot. So, you know, like color of money was, was Scorsese. Right. And then top gun was mm -hmm. what Tony Scott, um, you know, you got a few good men, you've got the firm. These are all movies that were directed by, you know, huge directors, uh, even interview with the vampire, um, as Lestat. So there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of meat on, on, on the bone of 
his acting career when you start to pull it apart. You know, he gets deduced because I think in the 90s, when he started getting those big paydays of $20 million, you know, he turned into to uh, Mission Impossible guy real, real fucking quick. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm telling you, it was the uh, it was the John Grisham movies, man. It was the firm. Yeah. Like once he once he got a taste of that like mainstream acceptance and that mainstream paycheck, it was over. That's the the whole Scientology journey began. Movie for me. Oh, he ran all over that thing. Yeah, (laughs) I'd like to change my answer. Actually, Interview with a Vampire was a pretty great Tom Cruise for me. Yeah, that was good stuff. Oh, okay. You know, I to to this day I've still never seen that movie. I always assumed that was a movie that you didn't watch if you had a Y chromosome, but I suppose that's stand correct. You've seen JFK five times, and you can't give <laughs> Brad Pitt and and Tom Cruise as vampires a shot. Yeah, no, dude, because like they're 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 like trying to get with like thirteen year old Kristen Dunst, which like nineteen year old Kristen Dunst doesn't do. It for she me, was so a vampire. She was ageless. <laughs> you would know if you saw the movie, bro. Doesn't count if you ask for her ID. She was like 416. You know, Jason, uh, <laughs> you know, he was also in uh, Jerry Maguire and Eyes Wide Shut. These are, uh, you know, all kind of subdued, yeah. uh, kind of mellow yeah, no, performances. You're, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I guess for me, you know, I I, I do really enjoy Jerry Maguire to – Javon's point, though, he's still kind of like he's like the man, right? Even if he's not necessarily right. like a brooding action star, he's definitely like in control, you know. So, but yeah, I think that uh, well, interesting. So I was gonna say that like I think that that my favorite sort of non traditional Tom Cruise performance is definitely his in Magnolia. But as I'm saying it out loud, I think it's probably because it's it's kind of a dissection of those roles, right? Like if you figure that like Tom Cruise plays the man, like in Magnolia, he's playing like. Uh, you don't call it a sex therapist, right? But he's like one of those guys who's like, hey, you know, hey, guys, this is how you slay any woman, right? And that would be like the sort of like the ultimate machismo, right? Like taken to like this advanced, like almost even absurd degree, right? But as we get in, in movies that really examine these types of characters, we find out that he's broken and, you know, there's a lot more depth and layering to that character in that film. So... That's definitely what I think of. But yeah, you know, these other roles that you're talking about, um, he does. So, yeah, it was really cool to see him be vulnerable in this. But film. how many years ago, how many years ago was it that he challenged himself in that way? Oh, yeah, dude, that was what? Uh, oh, well, that was the <laughs> that was the wonderful year of 1999. I remember this specifically, don't you, Ryan? So uh, that was what? Literally 21 years ago here. La- so last episode, 20 we, years we, of we, him lowering himself through suspension ropes. That's why I have a hard time remembering. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, and then as the movie continues, Ron starts slipping. You know, he's not doing so well. You know, he's getting way too drunk, way too often, starting fights in bars, coming home to his mom who forbids his drinking and having this dramatic yelling scene that I referred to earlier where, you know, he basically tells her to go fuck herself and she basically throws him out of the house and gets very offended when he uses the word penis under her roof and that whole thing. Oh, man, when his 17 brothers heard (laughs) that word, they lost their stuff, boy. She told him, don't you dare say that word in the house. And then he just doubled down on penis, penis, penis. And and that was it, dude. You know, we can put up with all this other crap. But when you say penis, that's it. You're out, kid. Ain't no room for that here. His dad said it's time to go to Mexico if you have to use those kind of words. (laughs) 
You, you can't say it three times or penis juice shows up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you seem to down in Mexico because, uh, you know, that was uh, definitely a bit on the hedonistic side, you know. I think that was actually Hedonism 3. You guys know that, uh, that, 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 uh, what is it, the Singles Resort, edition, Hedonism and Hedonism 2? Was... Yeah. They, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, do you guys want to go? <laughs> yeah, dude, no. I'll, Looked like a dude. fucking good time. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, uh, Ron goes to Mexico. And while we're there, we get a visit from our good friend, Mr. Willem Dafoe. Always dude, a pleasure to see his face. I have it in my notes with four exclamation points. Hey, Dafoe's here. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a party. Love that, dude. Yeah, no. He is always the guest of honor. Did you guys know that he was in a chair when you first saw him? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, he was sitting down. Why did you? No, I was kind of surprised when I saw that everyone down in Mexico seemed like they were on the same uh, thing, which was they were roaming around terrorizing people. They were like a motorcycle gang, but, you know, less good at fighting. But it didn't stop them (laughs) from fighting. Less motorized cycling, more more manual power. Yeah, but they were taking, they were doing all kinds of stuff. They're picking up women. They were drinking. It was quite the scene. Yeah, they were getting rowdy. His dad told them to do it. Yeah, they were they were they were some salty dogs down there for sure. They were definitely not on their best behavior. And yeah, so I guess Willem Dafoe, he's this guy Charlie. And if there can be a leader. Of this group of these people down there, I guess it would be him. If he's not the leader, he's certainly at least the most vocal and the most aggressive and the most in your face about what's going on. And uh, it was it was kind of interesting because I guess this kind of lends itself to my point about, you know, we were talking about how this film kind of just checks off a lot of boxes, which is like I really enjoyed this scene uh, specifically because we got Willem Dafoe and the interplay between him and Tom Cruise's character, mm-hmm. but it didn't 100% feel wholly necessary to the film. It does kind of seem like a scene, like if you got rid of it, you know, would the film be the same? I I, I think it kind of might. What do you guys the think? The scene meaning him going to Mexico in, in like all of that, they could have just cut all that out. You mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the idea was supposed to be that he came away from Mexico having learned a lesson, but I didn't really get that. And so the way that this scene plays out, it's almost kind of just like a diversion of sorts than it is crucial to his arc. I took it like he was run out of his own country by uh, our own citizens, the people that he went, uh, he felt like he went overseas to go fight for our values and our freedoms uh, so that other people could be free like us. And then we, when he came back, he was run out of his own country um, into Mexico, which is the only place that he felt that he could regain his sanity. And through Willem Dafoe's character, he was able to kind of collect himself. I also think when he started to be around other people like himself, he started to see a little more about how that looked. Mm, and yeah. you know, he was having to deal with himself. Willem Dafoe was kind of holding a mirror up to himself because he was kind of the same going through the same things and in the same period of his life. Uh, also yeah. odd um, to have to name your, your Vietnam vet 
uh, character Charlie. I thought I that that thought I was the only one. I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be very confusing. I was waiting for that to be a PTSD trigger where someone across the bar said, "Hey, Charlie," and then everyone's like, "Oh shit!" and it jumps out of the wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> not not cool, bro. He'd be the first one we voted off the island. So uh, we got to get rid of Charlie, man. He's triggering people left and right. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> I think I'd go by Chuck. Yeah, Chuck all the way. So, that would be much better, yeah. But when Tom Cruise comes back to the U.S., he comes back more focused and driven. We we have that fight scene with him and Defoe, which I'm sure we're going to get to. We all need to talk about that. That's just bananas. Uh, Perfect time, Ryan. I'll tell you what. Is this before or after the brothel? Do we know? I think it's after. I think well, right after this, broth- we get back to the United States. The brothel was kind of w- interesting as well. Where uh, Tom, they Tom Cruise, in the midst of trying to you know party with his wheelchair gang, uh, goes up and uh, gets with a prost- Mexican prostitute uh, to do something, and I think that's a big part of his frustration. Right. Is that he's not able to participate with some of the swarthy uh, Mexican uh, festivities that uh, all his buddies are able to. Right. Yeah. It, it seemed like he was coming to terms with his own demons a little bit there. And, uh, you know, he, he has a good cry and he's able to finally face that, uh, you know, some of the physical challenges that he's up against. And, um, you know, she holds him and, and, and cradles him and, and lets him get it all out. She motorboats him. Motorboats him and <laughs> and then he's able to come back down, you know, in a different frame of mind a little bit. And uh, as we always do, as we always do after a good motorboating. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a good point. Now, I do actually have a clip that I'm going to play of the fight that Defoe and Tom Cruise have on the way to the brothel. Let's listen real quick. What are we going to do now? Fuck them. Yeah, sure. How are we gonna get out of here? Fuck them all. Fuck the horse. Fuck the cab drivers. Fuck Mexico. Fuck Nixon. Fuck Vietnam. Fuck them all. Yeah, Charlie, but how are we gonna get out of here? They made me kill babies, man. Local babies. You ever have to kill a baby? Yeah. Okay, come on. We'll get a ride. We gotta get back to the villa. Fuck you! Gotta get back to the villa. What do you mean, okay? What do you mean, okay? You ever have to kill a baby? You ever have to kill a little goop baby? What the fuck do you know what I did? Yeah. I didn't think so. I didn't think so. You're full of shit. No, you are. The fuck? Leave me the fuck alone. You're nuts, you know that? You're nuts. The fucking sun is going down. What do you know what the fuck comes out of here at night? We gotta get out of here. Don't shit me, Colbert. You never killed a baby. You never had to kill a baby because you never put your soul into that war. You never put your soul on the line, man. How do you know? How the fuck do you know? Maybe I killed babies. Maybe I killed more babies than you did, you fuck! Maybe I killed a whole bunch of babies, but I don't talk about it! I don't have to talk about it! Why not? Why, why the fuck not? What are you hiding? What are you, uh, better than anybody else? You a hero? Is that where you are? Maybe fuck you got a whole bunch of fucking medals, but deep down you know you're full of shit. You never fought that war. You weren't even there, man. What the fuck do you mean I wasn't there, man? What do you mean? Come on, hero, come clean. Why should I? What the fuck are you hiding? I'm not hiding nothing. You're the one that's hiding down here in Mexico. You're the one that's hiding. What are you hiding from, you whiny fuck? Don't shit me. You never killed a baby, anybody, anything, did you, COVID? Did you? Did you? Did you? Did you? You ever look at yourself in the fucking mirror? Did you? Fuck you. You? No. 
You! Fuck you! No. Fuck you! Fuck! Now, one of the things that I will say that I really liked about this sequence, even in spite of maybe not right away understanding the narrative implications, is that there's a really subtle change-up of the filmmaking style. It's not... It's very similar to the previous sequence in the infirmary towards the beginning of the film, but it's not as over your head. But if you if you really like pay attention to this whole sequence in Mexico, you, you start to notice that like he's utilizing close ups stone, that is, for example, and he's like dropping certain frames when he's showing these people's fragmented state of minds. The lighting gets really distinctive. We start to see a lot more like shallow depth of field that sort of changing perspectives and it, it didn't beat you over the head with it as much as well, as much as Oliver Stone should really to at the end of the day, like we've talked about earlier. So, right. But if you look for it, it's there. And I thought that that was really effectively done. I appreciated that. I agree. I, like I said earlier, I like all this middle stuff. I liked, um, you know, the, the, everything from the VA hospital through Mexico, I think I was all in for, uh, you know, there were moments the, took I mean, that's me out a of good it. chunk of the movie, dude. That's like, what, an hour and a half, an hour 45? That's a good chunk yeah. of the movie, bro. Out of a two-hour and 40-minute movie, I mean, you know. I never went on record as saying I did not like this movie. I just thought that the, <laughs> a lot of the acting was... <laughs> I thought a lot of the acting was a little hammy and this and that. But uh, getting back to this Walk fight scene, because we just... Walk it back. Getting back to this fight scene, because um, I have Wheelchair to talk about fight. this. Wheelchair fight. Dude, couple things. <laughs> Number one, Jason, you were with me for the lighthouse. You have to. This is this is the kill a baby monologue version of the Hark Triton monologue that Willem Dafoe gives, right? Like this is same. <laughs> he brought some Hark Triton energy to this, and I really appreciated that. Yeah. So now this is kind of funny because you're you're right from a performance perspective, it was really good. But I kind of even felt like this more so than the. Then the Mexico scene, which was like, why does this scene exist in in, in his arc? Like, uh, is it just that he finally got that weight off of his chest, which allowed him to move forward? Because the family doesn't really forgive him. And, you know, it just kind of, again, it felt like a scene where it's like, if you take that out, does, does it change the movie as much? So yeah, it sounds I like. Again, I, I really kind of felt like he was confronting himself. Like Willem Dafoe was a version of himself that was going through the same thing. And so by him yelling at him and, and them getting it all out, you know, and then they, they end up, you know, don't they end up on the ground at some point? They're all exhausted and out of their wheelchairs and, and whatnot. I feel like they just well, got it they, out of their system. They both f fight the cab driver. They get ejected uh, into the desert and then they fight each other until they're both rolling around uh, without their wheelchairs. Yeah. That's the scene we just listened to. But I think to. it's yeah. like the scene in Star Wars where Luke has to face himself, a uh, dark version of himself before he right. can move forward. That's and exactly that's kind of exactly. what I got right. from that. Yep. Yeah. And on Dagobah. This is Dagobah. Mexico is Dagobah. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I will also add that uh, there's there was a cut where one minute they were in the back of that cab and the next minute they were on the side of the road in their wheelchairs. And what they didn't show you is there was probably about, without exaggeration, 20 minutes of getting them out, getting their wheelchairs set up, putting them in their <laughs> wheelchairs. That was really awkward for that cab driver. 
But what a nice guy. I mean, he probably helped them get into their, like, you can't stay in here. You guys are beating me up from the backseat. Because they were rowdy. They were like, if you got within grappling distance, they were going to snatch you up. Like, Yeah. Yeah. You thought the cooler heads would have prevailed by then, but uh, nope. Dude, that's hilarious. Do you think it was like a game... Do you think it was like a game on, game off situation where they're like all like game raging off. at each other? And then the taxi driver was like, all right, you guys are out. And they're like, okay, game out. And they were just silent for like the 22 minutes it took. And then as soon as he drives away, game on, fuck you. Brah. Those are the bonus scenes I need to see. <laughs> Tom, William Defoe stayed in character. He made them carry him. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and from here we're we're pretty much advancing on to, you know, more or less the third act of the film. This is where he's going to finally take that final transition in terms of his character arc and end up where he ends up. So Ron has decided that he is going to... It's 1972 now. Ron's decided he's going to march in a demonstration alongside other vets against Nixon and the Vietnam War. And they are actually able to get inside the actual convention itself and they're protesting the war from inside the convention and they managed to get on TV, you know, there's, so there's a bunch of people and security guards and all these, you know, conservatives are getting ready to throw them out. And the TV reporter is able to like muscle her way in there and get some questions. And of course, once he starts talking and he's on TV, they're not going to cut off or cut away. So, and then from there, he actually goes on a very impassioned and spirited defense, decrying the reasons for the involvement in the war and the treatment of the soldiers and the veterans. I also have a clip of that that I'm going to play. Let's go ahead and listen to that real quick. My name is Ron Kovic. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm here tonight to say that this war is wrong, that this society lied to me, it lied to my brothers, deceived the people in this country, tricked them into going 13,000 miles to fight a war against the poor peasant people who have a proud history of resistance, who have been struggling for their own, for their own independence for 1,000 years, the Vietnamese people. I can't. I can't find the words to express how the leadership of this government sickens me. Now, people say, people say, if you don't love America, then get the hell out. Well, I love America. We love the people of America very much, but when it comes to the government, it stops right there. The government is a bunch of corrupt thieves. They are rapists and robbers, and we are here to say that we don't have to take it anymore. We are here to say, we are here to tell the truth. They are killing our brothers in Vietnam. We want them to hear the truth tonight. We are here to Now, upon completion of this interview, he's basically labeled a traitor by all these Republicans at this convention. He's arrested by police, and he's dragged outside to where all of the various liberal protesters are. Now, when they see the way that Ron is being treated by the police who are just dragging him out and they've got him out of his chair and all of this, they basically storm the barricade and storm the police and Ron and free him and get him out of there. And what's also a very interesting note is that when this whole thing is happening, like when the protesters like said, beat down the police, get Ron back, and it's just kind of mayhem outside – the 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 swelling John Williams score comes back right. It's like a very sort of like inspirational song that's playing as 
they're sort of protesting. So it's interesting to see Oliver Stone reinforce the fact that in terms of Ron's character arc, you know, this is this is him evolving. You know, this would be considered a a, a positive, uh, you know, arc of growth uh, as it relates to Ron, which isn't is interesting from a political standpoint in terms of you know, because he he's sort of I I to this day, dude, I don't really know what Oliver Stone's politics are. I don't know if you guys do. Like sometimes he seems so incredibly liberal, and sometimes he seems so incredibly conservative, and like. I don't know if he's just completely anti-government and it just depends on who's in power. Yeah, that's my take. It seems the way that he portrays the police and their hippie beating and even the way that they warm up their batons. I don't know if you noticed the police waiting. Yes, definitely. uh, Good point. They're like beating their batons against their hands as if like to show like we're ready to club. Yeah, they can't wait to bust some skulls. I, I don't think that he's showing them in a good light with the way they show the police. That's just the way it seems. Yeah. I think he's just anti-establishment. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Damn the man. (laughs) And I do. uh, The other thing that I love about that scene is I really love the callback to the very beginning when he was rescued by a fellow soldier in the war. And he is now rescued by a fellow protester. And, you know, they make sure that it's done exactly the same way with, you know, the get on the back and the roll over, get them on the shoulders. So that was well, a really even in the sound design moment. and everything. It sounds very similar to that battlefield where he was hauled out, too. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that I really appreciated about this film is, you know, the 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 way that they would show you something up front that was a little to use J- Javon's favorite word, ham fisted. But then by the end of it, you know, we get a nice little callback and it resonates because of that, you know. So whether it's the second parade, you know, contrasted to the first, whether it's this protest war scene contrasted with, you know, his experience in Vietnam, there's a lot of these subtle callbacks and parallels that get made that sort of justify both ends, you know, the the sort of overwroughtness of the beginning and, you know, what I feel is is less of it towards the back half anyway. I agree. Yeah, so I think that might then, be one of the reasons why I don't like the first half of the movie is because I don't know that I'm being set up for these callbacks. I think I'm just watching this uh, movie. I'm watching this information that I don't care for as much, and then when I see it at the end, it, it hits a little harder. Yeah, that makes so sense. So maybe I don't like Oliver Stone movies because I only watch the first half and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta stick to around for those VHS. callbacks, bro. yeah well and then from there we get the final scene which is you know ron is a guest of honor at the 1976 democratic national convention and he's all dressed up in his sunday's finest and his soldier's outfit with his medals and whatnot and you know he gets wheeled or he wheels himself anyways down the carpet towards the stage the the one thing that i did think i i was certain that he was going to get like his climactic third act speech. I did think that the movie was going to go out with him getting on stage and, and getting like four to seven solid minutes to just sermonize, you know, and then everyone would clap and the movie would end that way. But it ends right before that moment. Which, I think which is his fine. version of that was supposed to be the mid riot huddle where they all kind of regroup and we're kind of, you know, it was after, after the last riot where he gets arrested, there's kind of a mid-riot uh, huddle where everybody like yeah. asks him how to proceed, I suppose. 
and they have kind of a ready break moment. I think that was supposed to be it, but I, I'm definitely the novice here. Yeah, and, and 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 again, I thought it was. I actually was surprised that uh, I thought it was a great film. Like I'll I'll go on record as saying that. So, Javon, you probably know because you've listened to the show before that we like to end each film segment with a little feature called Three Adjectives, where we give our three adjectives that we think best describe the film. As our esteemed guest of honor on today's show, I'm going to let you have first crack. What were your three adjectives for Born on the Fourth of July? I will say that it was gritty, educational, and man, I'm I'm stuff. I'm stuck on the third. I will say nostalgic, only because I didn't want to take ham fisted. Appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> it was right there, dude. That's why we. That's why I gave it to you first. Because whoever takes them first, the other person can't follow up. So, but you didn't take it, which means I guess Ryan, it's gonna be there for you if you want it. What you got for us, buddy? First word, ham fisted. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, my three adjectives uh, are are in fact uh, ham fisted, powerful, and a bummer. Uh, and let me go ahead and explain a little bit. I think this movie at its best is fantastic. Uh, the highest moments in the film uh, where, where Tom Cruise is excelling and everything is firing in all cylinders is great. Uh, there was a lot to love about this movie. Uh, there was a lot to not like about this movie as well. Like I said, the family's overacting, some of the, you know, the Wonder Years kind of drama that they play out and all of the dated stuff. Uh, you know, I, I and I, they they take a long time to get to some through some of the messaging. Um, there was a traumatic scene we didn't talk about where Tom Cruise trades his closure for the family's cl- in exchange for the family's closure that whose son they killed he killed in Vietnam. Uh, that was kind of a, a really awkward thing to show us uh, where Tom Cruise admits to them. You know, they were told uh, sold a bill of goods that. Uh, their son died in honor and valor, and then Tom Cruise goes and says, <laughs> "Guess what? I killed him." And they're like, "Wait, what? You don't?" And they tell him several times, "Like you don't have to tell us this." So there were some hard to watch moments. Yeah. Um, also, the Forrest and Jenny moment with Kira Sedgwick, Sedgwick, excuse me, um, where she's like, uh, "You want to come with me?" And then all of a sudden, his wheelchair wheel hits a curb, and we do a close up on that, and then right behind her is a whole flight of stairs. So there was kind of these visual tells that I thought were kind of beating me over the head with certain things. Like he can't go where she's going. Cause there's stairs there. It's like, no, I fucking get yeah. it. Like, <laughs> and they're all well lit and wet, you know, like, Hey, but see the stairs. It's like, yeah, no, I see it. Oliver. I get it. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow he was upstairs in the Mexican brothels with no problem. Yeah. Well, for 20 pesos, you get carried, I guess. I don't know. That is uh, funny, though. You know what? To your point, he does kind of seem sometimes like an artist who's like not exactly sure if you caught what he did. So he's just going to like bring a little more attention to it. Right. right? Like, right. Yeah. You didn't uh, you didn't catch the way that uh, uh, his his wheel hit the curb. All right. Cool. Well, here's a flight of stairs just to make sure. Just going to put that there. Bring it on home. Right. And I felt like the the whole first part where he's a kid was, you know, kind of like that too, like the Yankees hat. It's like we get it. Like American just yeah. all of it. Massapequa. You know? yeah. Massapequa, Massapequa. Represent Massapequa. <laughs> Long Island is Massapequa. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll go ahead and uh throw out my three adjectives here. So, first one is that I thought it was a pretty expansive film. 
You know, we talked about how it sort of like checks off a lot of boxes, tells this guy's sure. entire story, goes uh, from America to Vietnam to back, RNC, DNC, all of that. Mexico. So it, 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 yeah, Mexico told a big story. This is kind of a, a hyphenated, as we sometimes do, uh, well acted. So it was just consistently across the board. It was a really, really well acted film, which I think does heighten a lot of it, you know, um, especially when you do have some of the more problematic elements of Oliver Stone being ham fisted. Right. Um, it, but, you know, at the same time, the actors are able to sort of bring it up as well. And I think that at least it allows for a cohesive experience, even if it's not necessarily always authentic, so to speak. And the third adjective that I have is assured. I think that this is, you may not necessarily like the decisions that Oliver Stone made. You may find them to be a little bit silly or lacking in artistic merit, whatever your reasons. But this dude did nothing but make very specific decisions all along the way. Oh, yeah. You know, he's as a leader. For, for real. Yeah. He knew exactly what he wanted, right? Like from the, you know, red, white, and blue color scheme to, you know, amping everything up to 11. Like you can just almost sort of see him behind the scenes, like giving direction to like the 26th extra in the crowd, right? Like, all right, dude, you're a little flat. We need to see you bring it up. And so I definitely get the sense that this was a labor of love. It was a film that, you know, he cared about. He knew what he was doing. I think that. Whether you love it, hate it, or find yourself somewhere in the middle, Oliver Stone made exactly the film that he set out to make, and so you know that's uh, there's that, that there's value in that for sure. Definitely, a uh, couple things we didn't cover. Uh, everybody was someone in this movie. I don't know if you scroll down the cast list on IMDb. Oh yeah, that was crazy. there were so many actors in this movie. Um, People you wouldn't even think about. Genevon Oy, who was, uh, I think, Blossom's sidekick from back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Six. Uh, she was six. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Rocky Carroll from uh, Rock. You got Tom Berenger. Um, the real Abby Hoffman was in this movie uh, from the 60s. The writer and protester. Oliver Stone was in this movie. Tom I was going to say, did you see the movie? Oliver Stone cameo? Did Oliver you catch Stone that? Oliver Stone cameo. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, yeah, there were a lot of people. Every time you turn a corner, there's someone. Uh, Edie Brickell was the uh, guitar player in the bar singing old folk songs. So, yeah, everybody was someone in this movie. I thought that was uh, – th- this cast was full. Definitely. It was a lot of fun. Now, Ryan, one thing I just remembered, too, that I want to go back to, do a little callback of our own here real quick right before we slap our formal ratings on this, which is uh, you mentioned earlier about how a lot of the songs were like covers – Instead of using like the original artist masters, etc. Yeah. So, so you saying that it's funny because I had actually seen when I was doing a little bit of research that this movie went way over budget, and so they ended up having to spend like an additional like fourteen million or something like that to get it finished. Wow. Um. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the concessions. It was like, all right, Oliver, yeah. you don't get the originals anymore. You're taking my Definitely. brother doing a cover and you're going to like it because this is way too much money. He's like, all right. Yeah, I, I definitely. It. And that's what I thought when I was watching it is like they they definitely spent a lot of the, I mean, you could see production value other places. Uh, I guess they filmed all the Vietnam stuff over in the Philippines. 
So they went over there, yeah. uh, which I guess is where he filmed Platoon. So he, you know, he had connections and stuff there and knew some locations. So, uh, but that's not cheap, you know, when you start filming out of country like that. So, yeah, I definitely. But they saved a little bit of money with the Robert Rodriguez special effects on the uh, tent of people that they accidentally <laughs> massacred. There's lots of ketchup and carob syrup and all that other stuff. A lot of close-ups. Yeah. yeah. Um, they did have a real Filipino baby. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Authenticity. <laughs> All right. It is time to slap a formal rating on this. Now, Javon, uh, I don't I don't know which side you're going to end up on, because if you've listened to the show, you know that Ryan gives the grade ratings and I give the star ratings. So once again, I'm going to let you kick off our formal rating and tell us if you're going to give a grade rating or star rating. Star ratings out of five. Grade rating A through F. What you got? Uh, I was going to give it four out of five thumbs up. I didn't know about the gray out of... I was going to give it most... Yes, octopus standard. Um, When when I first found out that we were going to watch this movie, I did not look forward to it because of the subject matter. Uh, But as Oliver Stone does tell this story, and even as I recount it with you guys, there are certain parts that he really does beautifully... Um, when they set up the nostalgia of Massapequa and show you uh, Tom's virility, which that's the whole first part of the movie is his virility. But they tell the story very well for me. And I ended up liking the movie uh, despite Oliver Stone's best efforts. Uh, <laughs> I, Of course, I said on record that it would have been better with Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, as the lead. Um, Stand we by remake that. every other movie. Maybe we'll remake this one. Uh, but I really like the way that he told the story. I will give it uh, uh, four out of five thumbs up so that I don't steal either of your ratings. <laughs> All right. There you That's go. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Ryan, That's great rating. rating. Go, four buddy. Out of five. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give this uh, right down the middle B. I, I think that at its okay. best it excelled and, and at its worst, uh, you know, kind of lost me. Um, it, I think it was inconsistent. I think that that was my problem from giving it, getting in the A range. Uh, but there was a lot to love about this movie. And, and like I said, you know, we try to make this this podcast entertaining and all of that and, and, and poke our jokes. But uh, in the end, it was a powerful message. Uh, and there were moments that really struck home with me, um, you know, dealing with our veterans and stuff. That's something I just can't believe we still haven't figured that out yet. But um, why, why we don't, you know, treat them the way that they deserve. But, uh, anyway, you know, I think that that was the whole message that Oliver Stone was driving home is that you can, you know, you can hate the man, you know, you, you can stick it to the man and, and hate the, uh, authoritarianism of the government and the people pulling the strings. Um, you know, something we didn't even talk about Jason, that, that I have to, I, I'm sorry to, to kind of steal the show here for just a second, but, uh, no, please. before I pass it to you, which I'm going to do here right now, um, did you get any Paths of Glory vibes from this? We didn't even talk about that. Like, some, there's some strict Paths of Glory vibes with, from this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, with regards to just any sort of film like this that is critical of the government, but also supportive of the troops, you know? And I think that's ultimately what your message is right now, is, is it's, right. Entirely, it's entirely possible to be critical of a war and be critical of a military and be critical of a government, but also still be supportive of the soldiers that are fighting those wars specifically. Correct. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, so 
yeah, so I think I think Paths of Glory had a similar message in that respect. And yeah, so I could definitely see that. Obviously, you know, the films are, what, 30, 40 years apart. And Kubrick's a very different filmmaker than Stone. But yeah, right. in their own ways, they definitely deliver a similar message. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, but you could totally see, like, Nixon and Agnew, like, twirling mustaches and overstuffed chairs, just like the two dudes from Paths of Glory, right? <laughs> room in the beginning when they're talking about, you know, oh, we're going to take the anthill and I'll give you a commendation. Oh, cool. Blah, blah, blah. You know? It's, I don't yeah. know. No, yeah, definitely. And it's like it's like we said, too. You know, I mean, that's... Most filmmakers are rebellious sorts, right? They're never going to show, you know, the two presidents who are sitting there, you know, just with the good of the country in their hearts trying to do what's right. No, dude, they're always going to be these corrupt (laughs) assholes who are trying to, like, take advantage of the little guy for their own means. And so, you know, we're definitely going to see a lot more of that in other films, I'm sure. Probably films that are on one of our lists. So I'll go ahead and formalize my rating. Like I said, I I thought it was a really good movie is probably – my third favorite Oliver Stone movie uh, behind JFK and Natural Born Killers. So I'm going to give it four and a half stars. I thought it was really solid. You know, I went into all the different reasons and for the things that I didn't like about it were still motivated. You know, like I said, you okay. know, the, the, the sort of exaggerated, uh, overly patriotic beginnings set up a lot of what we are going to see as criticisms towards the end. And I don't think that either end would have been effective without the other either preceding or following it. So yeah, for, for Oliver Stone, man, it's a good one. Awesome. Do want to remind everybody that we've got a couple different social media accounts that you can go ahead and follow us on. The first is the old Instagram. We've got a really artsy little Instagram. It's got some fun quotes from the show. We've got some really cool posters of the different movies that we've discussed on the different episodes. So you can follow us on Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. And then you can have some fun with us on Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. Keep it to 280 characters. We're pretty active on the Twitter in terms of, you know, engagement. So uh, Instagram, you know, we're not going to do a lot of conversing on. But, uh, you know, if you if you want to talk to us about anything that's come up on the show, if you want to talk to us about any of our different opinions on various movies, anything we specifically talked about on Porn of the Fourth of July, if you're having an awesome muffin and you need somebody to talk to about that, you can go ahead and For hit us up on Twitter. God, will someone tell Jason about the muffin? <laughs> <laughs> Look, dude, Ryan, just everybody loves muffins and so many people want to discuss this awesome muffin that they're having, but there's nobody around to entertain them because they don't appreciate... Uh, how good a quality an muffin account. is. And I'm simply and letting people know that when they have such an inkling, they can reach out to us on Twitter <laughs> to tell us about said muffin. Or maybe you really want to talk about muffins, but you don't have Twitter. Good news. We've got email. You can hit us up on Gmail. That's esotericacinema at gmail.com. We equally give credence to chocolate and lemon muffins, as well as vanilla Frostings, we can go back and forth on. Regardless, if there's frosting, about it's those a muffins. cupcake. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if there's frosting, it turns into a cupcake. I don't know the difference between the two, oh, but I think that's you know what? Yeah, good. no, that's a that's a pretty good point. Hmm. This is also a nice segue to uh, plug Jason and I's uh, second podcast, Muffin to Say. Uh, where <laughs> Jason and I talk at length <laughs> about muffins, so you yeah. can find you can find us at Muffin to Say. <laughs> Go to your uh, go to your podcast directory. Look up the Muffin Men. You will see pictures oh, of Ryan man. and myself 
getting really deep into the intricacies of muffins, densities, layers. We we so we we deep. go really deep down the muffin rabbit hole, and that's not a oh, euphemism. So deep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so J- oh, Javon, we're gonna do something here. I'm so glad here. to know the muffin man. So glad to know the muffin man. <laughs> I got muffin to say about any of that. Oh, Ryan coming through with the puns. My man. My muffin man. All right. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> we're actually going to do uh, something we haven't done for the half episodes before on this episode, and that's that we have decided that there's really no reason that the half episodes shouldn't be randomized the same way that the full episodes are. So right now, we are actually going to announce our next half episode movie, and we're going to pull the number and the film live on air. So as we do, we go to our true random number generator, courtesy of random.org, and yes, they pay us handsomely to plug them to our 12 listeners, and we've got 50 movies, a nice round 50 movies for the half episode list. I think the main list is up to about 150, 155 or so right now. But we figured that, you know, make it a nice round number for the half episode list. I'm going to click roll the dice, Ryan. Please be JFK. Please be JFK. <laughs> <laughs> we have got as our number 49. Now, when I come over here, it's not. It's not it's it's really not that far up from the bottom. At 50 is Willow, which just missed out. 48 ah. 48 is Three Kings, which just missed Ooh. out. But I'm actually quite excited because next half episode we are going to be looking at David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Yes. <laughs> you know, Ryan, I saw this once when I was like 19. I literally remember Same. nothing about it. I may as well has have never seen this movie before for all intents and purposes. The only uh, I even remember see- he inserts a videotape into a woman's stomach at some point who absorbs it. Uh, okay. Deborah Harry's in this from Blondie as well nice. as the female lead. Yeah. Weird movie. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the only image that I remember is the one of, of him putting his hand up on the TV, which is like on literally the cover of the album or the DVD. So like that's the yeah, only yeah, yeah. reason I even remember that. So yeah, going to be an awesome episode and definitely going to be a little bit different flavor than what you got here today with uh, Born on the Fourth of July, needless to say. So And uh, crazy ass James Woods in his element. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Weird ass movie. I think this predates The Fly, right? Isn't this before I The Fly? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this is early. So yeah, so that's going to be crazy. Yep, when he was still kind of going through a lot of his like body horror type stuff. Yeah. I'm Definitely. I'm all in. So, me too. Me too. So, hey, Javon, thanks so much for coming up and joining us on this episode, man. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the show. Uh, and I, I really, really uh, love being a part of it. So thank you very much. Yeah, dude. I mean, we'll have to make this happen again for sure. This was a great time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So and then uh, also listeners uh, just want to let you know, we don't do a lot of pimping on this show, as you see, but it does help us if you give us the subs. So whether you follow us on Spotify whether you subscribe to us on Apple or Stitcher, Google, whatever it is, 
Uh, you know, one of the best ways you can support us if you do dig the show is just give us those subs and obviously just let people know, you know, spread the word. Uh, word of mouth is our favorite form of promotion. You know, we don't really do a lot of advertising. We just kind of want to let it grow organically. And we know we know that we exist in a small space for film nerds and we're happy to fill that space. But um, that being said, you know, the best thing you can do to support us is just go ahead and give us the subs, follow us on the socials, and reach out, man. I mean, if any of you, you know, want to get on the show, there might be some room to, you know, read an email or even have you on for a couple minutes. Don't be afraid. We love interacting with our audience, with you guys. We wouldn't do it without you guys. So thank you for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. When was the last time you let go? Broke free from your day-to-day routine. Felt the sand between your toes under the vanilla sky. Listened to the ocean and felt the sun on your face. It's time to run away with Tom Cruise Lines. Enjoy week-long vacations around the islands. Aboard ship, you'll enjoy all kinds of fun activities and be surrounded by action. Eat your way to the danger zone at one of our five dining experiences. Sucker, put food on the table! Sorry, Tom. That's it! No apologies! Don't worry, you'll burn off those calories with fun. Grab a friend, grease up, and chest bump your way to paradise at our daily shirtless volleyball tournament. On Tom Cruise Lines, you'll have plenty of time to relax as you're waited on by an entire staff catering to your every need. We are creating thousands of jobs, That's right, Tom. The staff loves it here, too. Take in the nightlife where our entire crew joins in a nightly conga line. Everybody dance. That's it! And you, too! And you, too! And you, too. And if you don't do it, you're fired! And if I see you do it again, you're gone! Haha! <laughs> That's confusing. So come sail with us on Tom Cruise Lines where, despite what you heard, we did not kill those babies. Maybe I killed more babies than you did, you fuck! Maybe I killed a whole bunch of babies, but I don't talk about it! Tom Cruise Lines. Uh, can we get legal down here? From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales. Bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement, and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.